Peace, family, and thank you for tuning in to Understanding the Nursing Game podcast. Many people are looking for financial help while in college. I would love to present the Thelma Lee McKenzie Nursing Scholarship. It was designed for nursing students at the University of South Alabama. You must have a 3.0 GPA and have graduated from a high school within Washington or Clark County in the state of Alabama. If anybody have any more questions about this scholarship, please call Rebecca Baker at 251-341-3721. This is Barry Coleman again on another episode of Understanding the Nursing Game. I have a very, very, very special guest with me today. I know I say it every every time, but I I got a feeling this is gonna be a real good one. But uh, before I get to this guest here, I'm gonna go ahead with the quote of the day. All right, quote of the day: "Live as though life was created for you." That's Miss Maya Angelou. Mm-hmm. Live as as though life was created for you. Hey, I, I like them just Me on too. the basis, just on the basis of man. Sometimes you can you can uh, go out into life and you can um you can not be confident about something. You can you can have a lot less of confidence about doing something. But if you just go out there and just live life with purpose, hey, more than more than likely the life that you got in the life that you envision in your head will come into reality. I agree totally. Yep. So you you have to be able to live, hey, as she said, live the life as though it was created just for you. Yeah. Amen right. to that. Yeah. So uh, I'm gonna go ahead and introduce Miss uh Miss uh Deborah Byers. 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 Yeah. Byers. That's right. Correct me now. I'm from Alabama, we I mess up a word. Hey, Miss Deborah Byers. How you doing today, Miss uh Miss Byers? I am well, and you? Hey, I'm doing I'm doing fantastically well. I heard you, you told me earlier you coming out to uh, Napa Valley and see. I know you ain't been listening to my show, but I actually work out there in Napa Valley. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, I you know, we're gonna have to talk off camera. You know, maybe maybe we can catch up or whatever. Go go to a winery just for a little while, and then I'll, I'll tell you a couple spots to go to, and just go from now. That'll be cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay then. But hey. I'm going to start the show out like I do everybody else. Tell everybody where you're from. I am originally from Chicago, born and raised in Chicago. Uh, lived in Kansas, in, in the Overland Park, Kansas area for over 30 years after I finished nursing school and everything. Relocated to New York City last year uh, for about a year and a half. I am currently living in New Hampshire, working in Vermont. <laughs> okay all right then all right now we're gonna start from the rooter to the tutor now okay hey, now so you say in chicago your folks from down south they from mississippi alabama georgia Correct. mississippi my mom my mom's from sunflower mississippi get out of here see i already knew i i've been studying a lot of uh what what, uh, what happened to blacks so uh, a lot of left and went to the city Correct. So, uh, yeah, I, I kind of figured that that's why I had that I had the ass. 
Okay, yep. then. So uh, you, you grew up in Chicago. How you like Chicago? Tell me. Now, since I am older, I love the city. Now, I'm not living there. Uh, but when I was living there, I lived in uh, what used to be Cabrini Green Housing Projects. Lived there until my mom moved out of Cabrini Green when I was 16. She moved to Milwaukee. So my family lived in Milwaukee. And um, I was there and went to high school for a year. Went to the military right out of high school. Really. Uh, I didn't really have a, cho- well, I did have a choice. I just wanted a better life, actually. It was a teenage mom on welfare, stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, what made you want to go into the the military? You know, they, hey, I'm I'm just going to speak from where I'm from. They say, they tell black folk, don't go into the military. So, you know, what, what, what made you want to go into the military? Well, like I said, I um, got pregnant at 16, was on welfare, um, originally wanted to go to the college, but being, I know my mom couldn't afford college, mm-hmm. a single parent, you know, right, um, right. all my, all my siblings, they had kids as, as teenagers. So that was like the generational thing. You know, everyone that I lived around was, was teenage moms with multiple kids on welfare. The more kids you had, the more money you got on welfare. So that that was the thing back in the day. And so I knew I wanted to I wanted to break that generational curse and definitely wanted to give my daughter a better life. So the military was the only option for me or stay there and have more kids. So that was the reason why I joined the Army. I went in the Army for four years. Okay. Now. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, my daddy, he joined the Army Reserve. Yeah. He told, he told me, boy, if you turn, if you join the military, don't join the Army Reserve. Go to the Air Force. You go down there, well, you join the Army, you join the Army, you're going to be down there with the with the dirt and, and, the, and, and the branches and stuff. Well, back in the day, the Reserve was like like uh, weekend, what we used to nickname Weekend Warrior. That has changed now after, you know, what's what has happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, they were sending reservists over there as well. So that doesn't even matter anymore. But yeah, I I went in, that was my purpose to pay for school. So, and it paid for nursing school. Okay. All right. All right. Now, besides the, um, the school aspect, when it comes to being in the military and being, um, I guess, um, the benefits of it. What's the benefits of being in the military besides the educational part for you? Number one, being able to travel. That was the big thing for me. I was stationed, like I done my AIT in New Jersey, what used to be Fort Dix. I think they closed the base down, done advanced individual training or AIT at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, uh, stationed in Germany for two years, which I think in Germany was the best two years of my life. Um, met a lot of people back then, and this was in the 80s, late 80s, that I still keep in contact with. That That's how it is, you know, when you're, mm-hmm. you have uh, people that you were stationed with in the service. It, it's that camaraderie that it will never go away, you know. Um, was in Germany for two years and was in uh, Fort Drum, New York for a year before I got out of the service. So travel was a huge thing. Um, you already mentioned about education. Also for me, uh, from a personal aspect, it was more of teaching me how to grow up, teaching perseverance, 
true grit, endurance, being able to to push yourself. The military pushes you. They break it breaks you down on purpose. Basic training that is what it's for. It breaks down the civilian mentality to give you a mentality of more of teamwork, of of um, having that other person watch your six, watch your back, um, and that mentality that that is instilled in you as as you as you get out of military and get older and i think that's what helped me tremendously in my goals personally as well as professionally more professionally than anything okay okay then i I like that right there that's a nice mature answer yeah (laughs) hey would you uh would you recommend the military to people yeah i would um, as a matter of fact, my daughter went in the military. My ex-husband was in the service. That's where I met him at. Um, most of my friends are prior military, you know, are veterans. My oldest daughter was in the Air Force. She's a veteran. She's a pharmacist now. They paid for her school. Her husband was in the service. Like I said, a lot of people, a lot of my friends and stuff that I know are veterans. Okay. All right. All right, then. So, uh... Now, you said you was in the military and things like that. Mm-hmm. What exactly got you into nursing? Always was interested in nursing. But again, growing up, I didn't think going to college was a tangible goal for me unless I went that route. Even when I went in, when I joined the military, I was a radio operator, actually. So I wasn't even in the medical field. You know, it and I qualified for that and, and I wanted to just get out of there. I wanted to, um, I went in the service immediately after graduating high school. I didn't even attend my high school graduation. Wow. Um, I just wanted to get out. I wanted to get out of that environment and make a better life. So what was offered to me is communications. That, that was the military occupational specialty number that I got, which is called the MOS. Um, I was what's called a 31 Victor, which was a tactical communication systems operator and mechanic. In other words, repairing radios and and stuff like that. It paid for school, like I said. Okay. All right, then. That's cool. That's cool. Now, when you was in nursing school, can you tell me some of the struggles that you had? Oh, goodness. Let's start from racial disparities from, from that, that point. I went to a BSN program in Kansas City, Missouri. The main campus was in Lamoni, Iowa. So that just lets you know right there, there wasn't too many of us dark-skinned folk. Okay. And as a matter of fact, I was the only Black student in my class. I was the first Black student that graduated from that nursing program, which was Graceland College, Graceland University. So, uh, okay. give, me, give me a little context. What year? What year this was? Uh, I went to school there from '91 to '95. I graduated in 1995, and in the picture of my graduating class, I was the only I was the only melanin person there. And as a matter of fact, when I remember vividly the first day of class, in which I was I was teased by other white students that I was I was there to fulfill a quota. That's right. And I came in with a 3.7. I actually went one year in uh 
at the community college in Kansas City before I transferred to this BSN program. Mm -hmm. I thought that I, I was first interested in just getting an associate's degree in nursing and then go and apply for my BSN, you know, the apply to the BSN program. Right. But that community college was a joke. You know, they, they had people um, being in that school for three years, three to four years just to get an associate's degree. You wow. know, and I, and I, I was, <laughs> that's why I applied to the BSN program and got into that program. And hell, found out later on that my GPA was was higher than the than the females that was saying all this, that I was fulfilling a quota. Because like I said, I went in with a 3.7 grade point average. Mm -hmm. um, but those are the things that I dealt with just there in that nursing program. The racial innuendos of the instructors um, telling me stop looking at things black and white when I like for let's say for a great example because there's a lot of memories coming back as I'm talking about with this nurse with nursing school mm -hmm. um, let's say if I was I had to give a presentation or something in front of the class and a lot of times and hopefully we we will touch base on this there are things that I do and it's because of childhood traumas that I've had in the past that I do things like not looking at people directly in their eye when I'm talking, when I'm giving, I'm doing a public speech or, or something like that. And um, I had instructors in nursing school tell me that that was a problem for them. And I need to start, in other words, Stop acting black and, and, and correct my correct my speech and and stop using and uh, and uh you know like you know how a lot of times when we talk right um just like what I'm doing now I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to say it in a complete sentence but I wind up saying uh you know or um as I'm trying to articulate my words uh huh a lot of those instructors call me out on it. No one else. No one else. So that's the BS that I had to deal with. In clinicals, some of the sites that I, my clinical sites that I was at, not only in nursing school, but also in anesthesia school, where they mistaken me as housekeeping or, you know, just, just crap like that. And I am not the only person of color that had to deal with that type of crap. Yeah. yeah. I, I understand. Um I normally go go to um go to a patient room or whatever, go and see them right before I take them to surgery or I have uh, in my other job and they 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 the last thing they think I am is a nurse. Correct. The last Correct. thing. I I was going to say that <laughs> as you're saying this, this is what else that's crazy as well. Now that I'm a CRNA, I mean, even I've, I've been a nurse anesthetist for about close to 19 years. Um, my first job after I graduated anesthesia school was at a level one trauma center in Kansas City, Missouri, in which I was one of the nursing instructors or clinical instructors in their nurse anesthesia program. Now, at that facility, the, the patients that we've dealt with they because this was in the inner city. So you had a lot of patients that was on Medicaid or no insurance at all. I can't tell you how many times with a lot of white 
patients that I'm I'm coming in and introducing myself, putting in an epidural. They want an epidural in which they're on Medicaid, knowing that we're not going to get reimbursed for it. You know, I mean, I'm being honest and getting called the N word. Right. And I'm about to come in and, and put in your epidural. And this is what you're calling me. <laughs> and that has happened. That has happened. Or taking a patient for surgery or about to work up a patient for surgery doing a pre-anesthesia assessment. And I had a patient that tell me that told me that they had a dream of, of a black witch putting them to sleep and killing them. They did not have anesthesia for me, that's for sure. And I talked to the and the, I talked to the surgeon, and the surgeon um, canceled the case because of that. Mm. So those are the disparities. Those are the things that you constantly deal with, and just decide professionally. It's for me professionally. It's like okay, I'm here to do a service. I'm here to provide a service and have to get out of that. Not taking things personally and stuff like that. But if it gets to a point, I'm not going to tolerate anyone calling me the N-word or anything like that, especially when I'm about to give you anesthesia. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest with you. When I when I was down south in Alabama and Tennessee and working, mm-hmm. I would have a similar uh, situation like that. And I would just, you know, just let it, you know, just let it go off, you know, like water on your back or whatever. Right. But I don't know. Ever since I came out here, I don't know if because I be hanging out in Oakland or what. I, I just, I just ain't, I ain't with it no more, man. Hey, 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 I'm for the, I'm for the, hey, I'm for the say song. Hey, you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. Hey, we gonna, we finna get it on. It, it don't even matter no more. Correct, correct. I will not have anyone. I will not have anyone put me down or call me out of my name or anything like that. Like I said, I don't need it. I don't, I don't, I'm not needing, I'm certainly not going to tolerate it. Mm-mm, no, I'm, not I'm at all. I'm with you on that. Now, uh, you said you got into a uh, nursing school and you became a nurse. What made you want to get, become a CRNA? Actually, I've, I found out about uh, nurse anesthesia when I started working as a nurse. Um, after I graduated nursing school, I worked mid-surge for a few months and that wasn't my thing because doing dental <laughs> care was not my thing. You know, I, I no. And I wound up taking an internship after six months out of school in an ICU unit. And from there I was doing um, like surgical, medical and surgical ICU. And I've done that for like six years or so. I have a friend, one of my dear friends that I've known for almost 30 years who who lives in Kansas city, who's a nurse anesthetist now. And, uh, he was telling me about the nurse anesthesia program. And at that time he was in a nursing program, nurse anesthesia program in Kansas city. And he was the one who encouraged me to apply. I didn't think I was smart enough. There was a lot of doubt, fear of failure, fear fear of not even getting accepted. Uh, he encouraged me. I wind up applying to eight different programs. I did not get accepted to seven of them. The mm. eighth program that I applied to was like a Hail Mary in which I got accepted a week after the deadline. I had taken the GRE three times, realizing those standardized tests for for students, especially students of color, 
when you're when you're yeah, and when you have um, attended uh, inner city school, you know you're you, they don't prepare you for that. And then you, and back in the day, definitely didn't have programs like these that that focused on STEM courses. So. I mean, make a long story short, definitely was ill prepared, but I, I take, I studied and, and, and failed the game. You know, I didn't get a great score for the GRE. Um, I barely got the minimum score for GRE in order to, um, to even qualify for the program, the nurse anesthesia program that I got accepted in, which was Webster University in, in St. Louis, Missouri. And what's crazy was that, um, like I said, I applied there as a help. It's like a Hail Mary, like, you know, forget it. Um, got offered an interview, went to the interview. And I recall that the associate director asked me in the interview, during the interview, because at that point, you they already see your, your you know, the qualifications. You meet the minimum requirements at that point before the interview. So the interview is kind of like a selling point. It's, you know, it's subjective. The associate director asked me if I did not get accepted to this program, what will I do? I told her, you'll see me next year. I got accepted. Uh, that's <laughs> all right. I, that's all right. She probably took away that you strong will and she going to persevere. So I might let her in now. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I was going to apply. I was going to apply again. I, I was determined to, to get in that year. That, that's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So once you became a CRNA, Mm-hmm. How did you juggle um, your home life with your with school life? And I'm, I'm sure you probably had to work or, you know, or maybe you didn't have to work. How did you juggle all of that? Because I know your kids were younger then. Yes. At that time, when I was in uh, anesthesia school, I was married. Um, my ex-husband was in the Air Force. So I had the, I was going to say the luxury. I was fortunate I was fortunate enough that he supported me because, like I said, I was married and the kids were younger. um, So I didn't really have to work much. Now, I even though there are a lot of anesthesia students that cannot work or or they it is is strongly encouraged not to work. I know a lot of I know I have a lot of friends that was in anesthesia school. Black nurses that worked, worked full time and went to anesthesia school. Two of my best friends who are who are CRNAs who went to the same program I did. They had kids and and they had autistic kids and they were still working full time, single parent and in anesthesia school. I admire those two women to the utmost. I respect them. They're, they're, they are my dear friends. I, I, yes, I, was, yes. I was in awe of their determination and perseverance. Right. In awe. Right. So, like I said, with me, I was fortunate enough that my ex-husband supported me. After anesthesia school, though, um, I wind up getting a divorce a year after I graduated and kind of went from there, raised my kids on my own. Okay, okay. Now... Um, I have some uh, people that, uh, some young people that I mentor. Mm-hmm. And a couple of them have uh, told me they want to be a CRNA and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I have, uh, you know, I have uh, gotten them in touch with some some people. And um, if you're cool with it, I wouldn't mind you, um, you know, you you talking to them as well. 
Um, not at all. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm okay. Yes, I, I am. I would love that actually. I also just FYI, anytime I meet anyone, whether it is a high school student or a nursing student or even uh, an RN who is interested in anesthesia, um, I've always number one referred them to. There is a program that is out. There's a program that's called the, the Diversity and Nurse Anesthesia Mentorship Program. And that program was founded by one of my, my dear friends, Dr. Lena Gould. And the purpose of her, you know her? I'm going to be honest with you. My co-host, Shawana, she said her name in and, and her episode. And then we interviewed another woman by the name of uh, Dr. Alexis uh, Robinson. And she named her. And yeah, I'm like, I'm like, this name just keep on popping up. Yes, Lena is the black Oprah of anesthesia. <laughs> she is the Oprah of anesthesia. We love her. We mm. love her. The purpose is to educate, to to educate and also inspire people of color in order to matriculate into nurse anesthesia programs or to learn about it to be prepared for it because it's already, it, it, we are all, as far as um, nurses of color, we represent less than 2% of CRNAs in the United States, less than 2%. And I think last time that was counted, I think it's like 50, 54,000 CRNAs. And that's 2%, wow. less than 2%, like I said. And African-Americans are less than that, probably half of that. So our purpose, any, anytime, almost every black CRNA that I know of, I know personally or know of them, we always encourage and we will tell them about that diversity program and let them know so they can join the website, so they can attend any seminars, that they can do mock interviews with them. I mean, it is just so much valuable information in order to prepare them to apply for these nurse anesthesia programs. It gives them a leg up. That's something that we didn't have when we were at a nursing school. I mean, you know, anesthesia school. Right. Man, that's all right. Hey, that's a beautiful... I need to learn more about them just because her name just keep on popping up. She's, so I, she's the ish. She is I, the ish. <laughs> I, I, I can believe that. I can believe that. My goodness. Okay. So uh, what position do you normally hold? Uh, what position do you currently hold? And, you know, uh, I want you to tell me, tell me some, uh, some good things, uh, the good benefits of having your job right now and some of the, the down, down part of being, of being a CRNA. Well, I am an independent contractor. I, in other words, I work, I, I work autonomously. I have my own, I work as, as a 1099. I have my own uh, uh, LLC, uh, actually my own S-Corp, um, which is called Precision Anesthesia Services. I've done that for, I've, I've had that business since 2008. And currently... I work as I subcontract with the hospital that I am at in Springfield, Vermont. I work, like I said, with three other CRNAs. Each one of them have, we each have our own business and we provide anesthesia specifically for that hospital. So we do not work under an anesthesiologist. 
We do the anesthesia there. It's, it's just us. It right. is us. With a number of states, you can, um, it's called opt out in which um, the nurse anesthetist can work autonomously and work under direction of a physician. It does not have to be an anesthesiologist. So, and that's just part of the nurse, depending on that state, Nurse Practice Act. And in Vermont, it is one of those states where we work in collaboration with the physician, whether it's the surgeon, a podiatrist, a general surgeon or whatever, but we provide the anesthesia for the facility. Okay. And we do everything. Now, I have a, my co-host was a, um, she's a CRNA. And the other lady that I interviewed, she is CRNA. And all of them say they are 1099. Correct. Now, why is that so popular in the anesthesia room for the nurses, nurse Uh Big thing is autonomy, that you're able to set your own hours and work when you want to work, to be able to to have contracts at different facilities or wherever you can have multiple jobs. It's not, it, it's not as bad as it, as it seemed as far as um, having contracts with two or three different facilities, you're working PRN. That that's basically how it is. Think of it as working PRN or local. So the autonomy is a huge deal. Number two, of course, the income, the money, because you make more, as a 1099 versus a W-2, but you have to pay your own taxes as well. Um, you pay your, you have, you don't receive benefits and because you're not an employee, you per, you have your, you have to pay for your own health insurance, your own malpractice insurance, stuff like that. But the majority of CRNAs that are 1099 have their own LLC. They have their own business. And for tax, deductibles tax purposes that's a plus that is a plus because you can you can deduct a number of things off at the end of the year so it is becoming more and more popular you just have to learn the ins and outs of it one of the things one of the things i I will mention as well that i'm learning now is that you're there's a number of crnas that are getting into more um or have, getting more businesses outside of anesthesia to become an entrepreneur. Because the thing is, and this is what I was told actually by my financial planner. She said, I don't care if you're a 1099 or whatever, or have your own business. If you are depending on your, if, if you have to get up and go to work and that's the only way that you're making money, you know, you have a job, you have a job. And that, and it, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And she is correct because if I don't go to work, if I don't show up tomorrow, I don't get paid. I won't get paid. So it's a job. It is a glorified job that I'm working as, you know, working whenever I want to work or whatever. So this is, this is a point now where I'm like, okay, I need to start making passive income. And having my money work for me. So been doing a lot of research and stuff on that. Man. Building wealth. Building wealth. That's my goal. Man, hey, Miss Deborah, Miss Deborah. Hey, 
I appreciate you. You just gave a uh, a whole library of gems. I appreciate <laughs> you. Hey, I I need today. I've been I I kind of well. I ain't gonna lie. Last two years, I've been on this financial freedom journey, and everything. Yes. Everything you said has been along that same journey. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, I just actually got off the phone with my homeboy. And he was, uh, I was having one of those days when I was feeling down and out. Hey, tired. I'm tired. Hey, man, I need some help. Right. I, need some, I needed some fuel. And then guess what? The good Lord said, hey, guess what? We're going we gonna to see Medeva Medeva buyers your way. She's going she gonna to give you that fuel today. And I, I, I appreciate you. I'm just being honest. Thank now, you. Now, hey, before we get you on out of here, because I ain't going to try to hold you up in time, um, you touched on childhood trauma. Now, the reason why I reached out to, to you was because you had a product, you had a book. So I want you to read, um, I want you to speak on the book and um, speak on, you know, your your childhood trauma and things like that. Whatever you're willing to share, hey, I'm willing to um the here as of right now. Thank you. I'm an open book when it comes to that. Um, I do, I have a book that's out that I actually published and released last year and it's available on Amazon. It's, a, it's actually available on my IG page on the link. The name of my book is called Evolving into Oneness. Oneness, an introspection into learning to deal and heal. And basically it is, it started off when I wrote the book, it actually started off as my journal. I am, I'll say a survivor of uh, childhood sexual trauma. I, and I, I, I went into detail, graphic detail in my book about it. I was sexually abused by my mom's boyfriend when I was nine, 19 years old. And that's what I can recall the earliest and kind of suppressed that for decades. Also, in a, that, that led to even growing up as a teenager. That should explain what I said when I said I was a teenage mom. I got pregnant at 16. That's typically what happens with childhood sexual trauma. When things occur where you're... You don't feel loved um, telling your family about it and, and they either deny it or don't believe you or whatever. And, and all the other um, baggage that comes along with that. So, of course, that that girl, that person start doing things, acting out, being promiscuous, among other stuff. So that doesn't that's not surprising. Like I said, being a teen, getting pregnant at 16 when I went in the military, um, dealt with the sexual trauma in the military as well. Currently been diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety de and depression. So just dealing with that and it manifested itself actually a year and a half ago, once I moved to New York, I think it was the, it was a number of major life changes that had happened that caused that started having panic attacks, severe panic attacks in which I sought at the VA for counseling for it and seeing a psychiatrist for it at the VA. And that kind of led to that with the, with the therapy, writing down my thoughts, writing down everything in the journal. And it was cathartic. And that's when I started opening up. It, it was like 
telling these people who had hurt me and all these things that I've suppressed for, for decades, letting it all out and understanding what, that it's not my fault and understanding that I have to know where I've been to know where I'm going. I had to change that. All these coping mechanisms that was that is dysfunctional, understanding why that had happened, why, it's, why I'm like how I am, and learning to deal with that. So in the book, that is mainly what I'm, I, I went into detail just talking about it. It, it. It's raw. It's graphic. I'm not ashamed in saying the things that I said because it is my story. It is my truth. So, yeah, I, I released it in October of last year, received some great reviews on it. And I wasn't even looking for it for monetary value. Like I said, it was cathartic, it was a cathartic, therapeutic approach in order for me to learn how to deal and to heal from what had happened to me, to, to understand that it's okay. It was not my fault. And Telling that inner child that it's going to be okay. I got you. Hey, man, that's, that's a powerful story. Hey, so you saying for anyone that's listening, they can go to Amazon. And what's the name of the title again? I want everybody to catch it again. The name of the title is Evolving into Oneness. An introspection into learning to deal and heal. And like I said, if you go on my IG page, my IG page is Dr. Uh, is Dr. Deb underscore CRNA 52. And there is a link tree link in which they can click on that. And that will go to the website that will eat that will directly go to the Amazon website to order the book if they're interested. All right. All right. Well, hey, that's good. I'm so glad uh, you told us about that. Now, you said something that kind of triggered my mind. Now, you said uh, you was in New York City this time last year. Yes, I moved there to New York in January of 2020 at the height of the pandemic. Hey, that and that's, that's what I was going to get to. Like, So you think the um, the stresses of work is what triggered everything? Um, when it comes to your anxiety and, and, and you having to seek counseling and stuff like that. It manifested it, yes. The moving from Kansas to New York City was a shock in itself, um, among other stuff. Um, so all of that, you're talking about moving to a, a different city, getting a job, losing my job after 30 days, almost 60 days of being there, being furloughed when it happened because that's when they stopped elective cases. So all of that. And then on top of that, when I had no choice, as a matter of fact, after three months of living there, I wound up working back as a nurse again. And I, I worked at one of the, um, they had uh, the staffing, those the, the, um, the disaster staffing agencies it was a bunch of them that was coming to New York City, sending nurses there and was paying them well. So I worked as a I worked as a registered nurse, an ER nurse for six weeks because I didn't have a job as a nurse anesthetist. I mean, oh, they closed down they closed down uh, surgeries and stuff, you know, um, during those six weeks that I worked as an ER nurse, 13 patients that I had died from COVID complications. Yeah, that 
that triggered all of that was just, you know, the stress uh, on top of stress just sent me in a spiral of um, anxiety and depression. So, yeah, it, it it definitely was one of the triggering points. That's good. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you was able to um, get you some counseling. Um, a lot of people just see the nurses as, uh, you know, uh, someone that's, that's there to take care of them. But, but a lot of times the nurses, they have stuff going on in their personal life. Absolutely. And, um, you know, um, everybody don't look at it. You know, the healthcare provider, I mean, they have their own, you know, they um they family, you know, they might be at odds with their family. Um, you know, um, all kind of little stresses are going on, especially during the pandemic, even though, you know, it was like a hashtag going on. I can't remember. I'm not on social media. I really don't care about social media, but they were saying something about, uh, I got to go to work or something. I, I'm essential or something. Yeah. But, uh, even when you are essential and you having to go to work, you're still dealing with home stuff along with going to work during the pandemic and things right. are changing. I work in the operating room too. So um, at the time when the pandemic started, I was actually in Alabama. And uh, I, I was actually in, uh, in uh, yeah, in Alabama. And um, man, I tell you what, when I flew back out to California and I started back working, you know, it was just like, man, everybody, it, it was almost like Armageddon, almost. Yes. I mean, things were changing by the hour. I mean, we we hear one thing, uh, you know, you got to wear a mask, and then we hear you don't have to hear, wear a mask, and then you got you. It's a guarantee, and you got to wear a mask, right? And and people just looking at the mask thing. When you in surgery, you got to look out. How can I protect myself when I'm taking my patient into surgery, and it's like an emergency emergency surgery. And they don't really have the hospital. Don't really have um money. The PPE gear. Uh, yeah. The PPE. There you go. Correct. There you go. So uh, I mean, it was just it's a lot of stuff that was going on. It was uh, almost like wartime. Yeah. And I, and I haven't been in war, so I can't compare it to like World War Two or anything like that. But man, it was. I mean, information was changing, and it was updates at least two to three times a day. Yeah, and and I know. I'm just one of many nurses, especially the ones that are in New York, in New York City, who was who was in the heart of it because it was hard. New York City was the hardest hit. Right. So you had nurses working or CRNAs working with limited resources, with limited protection gear who dealt with these COVID patients that was putting not only themselves at risk, but their families at risk, dealing with all of this, still having to work, because where else they're going to do? What else are they going to do? So yeah, they were essential. And and that it took its toll mentally. It, it definitely had taken its toll, but we persevered. And you're talking about from a perspective of an African-American, we're used to, in, in, in the Black community, we're used to dealing with BS. We're used to dealing with stress. We're used to overcoming and persevering. That's in our DNA. You know, you add all of this to it. No wonder there are a lot of us in our community that have 
mental health issues. And what I am grateful for is now it is acceptable for us to talk about uh, that it is okay if we are, uh, you know, that, that we're suffering from depression, that we have anxiety, that we have PTSD from all of this, from, from um, things that have happened, traumatic incidences that happened in our past. It is okay for us to talk about this. It is okay for, in that Black community, but especially now that I'm realizing more and more Black men are coming out and talking about their issues as well. That's a beautiful thing. I'm glad. I, like I said, I have no problem telling anyone about what I'm dealing with, with my PTSD and stuff. Hopefully that will encourage others to, to talk to someone, to seek help. It's okay. It, it, it's okay. You know? <laughs> I agree with you. I'm, uh, I'm doing this. Piggyback on that and just say, man, I I know. Just I'm glad Shawana had uh it um encouraged me to kind of find out the ins and outs of doing this podcast because <laughs> it's been very uh therapeutic for me. Yeah, I, I I can't I ain't gonna speak for her and how she feel. I'm just talking about for me. For me, I get on here. I ain't gonna lie. I get on here. I start drinking and I just tell everything and. I'm be honest with you, I, I feel better. I, I feel like I'm letting go of some things that I've been holding on to. Yeah. I'm able to, um, I feel like I'm able to take care of my patients better just because I don't have all that stuff built in. It's cathartic, isn't it? Yes, right. indeed. Indeed. So, uh, hey, Miss uh, Ms. Deborah, hey, this has been a great interview. I told you at the beginning, I felt like this was going to be a good interview. So I'm, I'm going to try to go ahead and get you out of here. Okay. And, uh, hey, I'm 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 gonna be honest with you. I got to have you back on. I I I've been saying that here lately to everybody, but I mean, for you, hey, I I feel like we have uh some type of chemistry. So I would uh, love I would love that. Okay. Well, hey, I got some questions that I like to ask everybody um towards the end, just like some okay. cool little. Uh, when you're riding into work, tell me who you like to listen to. Um, depending on the mood that I'm in, I love contemporary jazz. So I would listen to um, since I have Sirius X, F, you know XM in my car. I will listen to Watercolors, you, you know, with the with the smooth jazz. If I'm in a mood where I, I need to get hyped, you know, I'll, I'll listen to hip hop or whatever. Um, okay. It just it just depends on the mood that I'm in. Okay. All right then. All right. Hey, I wanted to uh, recommend somebody. Hold on. I can't tell you who it is off the top of my head. Cause I've been, I, I, I done two, one, two minute sips. <laughs> Let me see. Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Man, who is this guy? Man, I can't think of him. I'm going to tell you. I, I, got, I got to tell you. I just wish I could find him real quick. Man, I can't find my boy right now. And I saw him down there in uh, New Orleans right before the pandemic shut the world down. I'm finna find him. Hold on, hold on. Okay. New Orleans. Uh, he played a. Uh, I think that's the guitar. No, it ain't the guitar, Lord. Man, what's the name of that boy? Ooh, I can't even think of the boy's name. I can edit out all the other stuff, but man, I can't. You know, I can't even think of the boy's name right now. He do like weddings in there. Oh, Dominique Hammonds. That's him. Okay. I'm going to send it to your Instagram name. 
He do okay. real. Hey, I'm talking about he get on that violin. Hey, black dude. I'm talking about he, hey, he played down there. We went, uh, you know, my dad and my cousin. Us three went down to New Orleans, New uh-huh. Orleans uh, Pelicans. It's an NBA team. And man, we went down there and watched them, uh, watch that boy did halftime, but he showed out up and out. Man, it was it was just a beautiful thing. I'm gonna send it to him. I'm gonna send him to you so that you can uh you can just listen to him. He 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 pretty good on that violin. Okay, cool. Okay. But hey, uh next question, uh activities that you did for fun during COVID. What did I do for fun? For fun, <laughs> yes. I didn't do anything for fun. Couldn't travel. <laughs> Typically, my thing is traveling, and I I, I travel overseas. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, I'm one of these bougie girls. Where hell, we, I mean, there's a it's a few of us where when you talk, we we traveled, we done our thing. Couldn't do that. Oh, there wasn't anything else to do. So um, during the pandemic, I really didn't do anything fun. Okay. All right. All right. Unfortunately. That's all right. So you, uh, when you stayed at home, then did you watch movies or? Uh, tried to do a lot of reading and, and Netflix. That was my friend. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, tell, me, hey, tell me one good book that you read during the pandemic then. Or who your favorite artist is. I mean, favorite or Arthur. Uh. I really don't have a favorite author, but I'm I'm the type I am. This is weird. And maybe it's because I've been in the military or whatever. I like reading autobiography and I like reading um, like military, either military autobiographies or anything that has to do with um, war periods like the Vietnam War or the Iraq War. Or, uh, you know, those are the type of books that, and and I know that probably sounds, I don't know, that's what I'm interested in. That probably the reason, that probably did nothing but hurt (laughs) of what I was dealing with anyway, being depressed, but that was my escapism, you know? All right, then. All right. I'm going to go ahead and tell everybody my favorite author is all. Well, I got two of them. Okay. It's uh Robert Greene. Okay. And his uh most popular book or the book that had the most influence on me is the Forty Eight Laws of Power. Okay. And then uh, the second author is uh Napoleon Hill. Now his most popular book is Think and Grow Rich. Uh huh. But the book that uh had the most influence to me from Napoleon Hill was uh I Win the Devil. Okay, and, and, and that sounds familiar too. That sounds so familiar. Which one? Um, the author. Oh, the uh, Napoleon. Hill, he's very popular. He's most his most popular book is The Think and Grow Rich. A lot of people okay. don't know he's more positive or whatever. But I win the devil. I love that one because it was like a man at the time that I I had um read it. I had my first child. And boy, I'm talking about I was down and out. I'm talking about bad luck. I had flunked the uh, ink list like twice. Oh, like, yeah. So when I at that time, I had read it, and that man and the man in the in the book, he had uh, reached a height to where he had um, you know, he was selling on. Uh, I think he was he had wrote like articles for newspaper. He was pretty much he was at a high in his career, 
But then he lost his job. The, the guy that was over him got killed and people ran him out of town and he didn't have a way to provide for his family. Mm-hmm. So um, I, at that time, I was um, I had graduated from nursing school, but I couldn't pass the NCLEX. And so, um, you know, I, I kind of I felt like I felt like we had an overlapping experience. You know, right. We reached a high, but then we had a, a such a drastic uh, fall off. And um, you know, he just talked about that, and then he talked talked with the devil about a couple of things and about different topics and stuff like that. And so it just always um stuck with me, right? So that's the other book that he um he wrote that that really influenced me. Now, one of the books that I did that I can recall as you're talking about all this that I loved, but I love her anyway. Uh, with Michelle Obama's book Becoming. Okay. Uh, that woman is like, a, a, I mean, just such a positive influence for women, especially black women. Okay. Um, I, I, I loved that book. I love her, you know, right. um, definitely her strength and character and the, a, a true account of what she had to go through growing, not only growing up in Chicago, but, right. you know, right. being married and actually being the first lady and the, what she had to deal with being an African an educated African-American woman. A lot of us can relate to that. You know, a lot of a lot of women, especially African-American women, can relate to what she had to deal with and love her for it. I mean, she's still standing. So if there is one book that I can truly say that um, was a positive influence on on me, you know, um, just in life is that book that I can think of off the top of my head. Okay, then. Okay. I have heard uh, good things about it. I haven't. uh, I know I haven't slowed down to read it, but Mm -hmm. I heard other women say they they really enjoyed that book. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. uh, Name one thing that you would tell your younger self. It's going to be okay. No matter what it seems like, no matter how dark it may seem, it is going to be okay. Okay. I actually I actually say that to in therapy, and I wrote that down in my journal, saying that to my 14-year-old self. If I had to, if I had to face myself at age 14. That's exactly right. what I would tell her. Okay. All right then. Hey, I've been um ever since I've been asking the quit hills, that's one of the questions that I love to ask. And a lot of people say the same thing, like just be patient with yourself, uh, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm I'm like, man, it seems like seems like when we're younger, we just I don't know if it's outside pressure to be successful or whatever the case is, but we put a lot of um, stress upon ourselves to where we don't allow ourselves to mature throughout our uh, our experience. Right. So, um, hey, I, I'm just seeing it seems like a reoccurring theme every time I um I ask somebody that 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 uh, direct question. Right. But uh, hey, if you uh, name one nurse that should be on that should be on our show, and if you if you are uh, name them, you got to help us get them. Does it have to be a nurse or a nursing student? Can it be a nurse? Oh, it could be a nursing student. I, I, I take know the perfect. Students. I know the perfect person then. Okay, <laughs> then. Go, hey, go ahead and call their name out then. 
All right. My my friend, my best friend, my mentee, uh, his name is Keith Beasley, KB. Yeah, IG page is traveling underscore bruh. He's a Q. Yeah, he's a Q. He's a Mason. He's a Marine. He's a nursing student at Coppin State. Um, I, as a matter of fact, as we're talking about this, I had put him in to be featured on, on IG um, in which they posted him just an hour ago on IG page Q Dogs Worldwide. His, mm. his, I, I, I wrote a, I wrote a little uh, piece on him. He is, he's the perfect person to, for you to interview as an African-American male right. going into this field, which is not too many of you guys anyway. That's then right. you add to that, this is his second career. I mean, he's 45 years old. Like oh, I said, yeah. he's a Marine. So, and, and, and so all those qualities, all those characters that has been instilled in him as a Marine, as a Q, as a Mason, as far as the perseverance, as far as his sacrifice, as far as his ambition, being ambitious, as far as his strength, his endurance, his, his humility and his character, those are examples that exemplify Black excellence to me. And I tell him that every day. You know, every every time when I talk to him, I see him, I encourage him. Like, Black man, you just don't know how much of an influence you are, how much you are needed, how much you are loved. And I, I tell him that all the time. Um, very articulate brother. Yes, I will get him. <laughs> okay. I will get him for you. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, I surely appreciate it. Um. Like you said, it's not that many brothers mm-hmm. in the nursing field, and uh, we are like dinosaurs. Correct. You you Correct. see you see one today, you might not see one for some years. Yeah. So uh, Correct. you know, I I just uh, I appreciate you all uh, recommending him, and uh, hopefully we can get him on the show. I'm and, sure uh, you will. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I, I, I'm almost certain you can. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Then, well, that's cool. That's cool. But well, hey, Miss Deborah, hey, it's been good uh, interviewing you, and um, I'm going to have you. Uh, well, I'm gonna send an invitation for you to get back on with a uh, uh, in the future. Anyway, no problem. Yeah, Looking it might be. It. it might be the the near future. But, I'm fine uh, with that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, hey, we're gonna have to get you back on and um. Uh, you know, let allow allow you to elaborate on some things, and uh, we just go for now. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for inviting me for having me doing this. Oh and, yeah, thank you. No problem, no problem. And for everybody that's uh, tuning in and um, listening, I, I hope you enjoyed. I, I want to tell you uh, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Uh, I want you to subscribe, um, be a follower of the show, and um. Hey, you've been locked into another episode of Understanding the Nursing Game podcast.